Over the past nine weeks, we have been studying the life of Jacob. And if there were ever a more appropriate title for a sermon series, I don't know uh, if there is one uh, better than messy life. We have looked at his life and we have seen, in fact, that it was a very messy life. And let's take a moment to think about all of the amazing and awful, because both are present in this story, that have already happened. There has been deception, dressing up in costumes, death threats, running from those threats, marriage, more deception, another marriage, lots of kids who hate their half-siblings, a plethora of spotted and streaked sheep and goats running again, reunion. We have seen it all. We have laughed, we have cried, we have said, what is going on in this story? And throughout the story, we have seen God go along for the ride while also showing up powerfully in the life of Jacob. He gave his blessing to Jacob in the midst of all of that mess before Jacob really even showed that he was a person of character or quality, God spoke to him and, and promised that he would be with him and that Jacob would have the blessing that God had promised. We have seen how all of this has happened in the middle of this mess. And, and maybe... Maybe we don't appreciate quite as fully how remarkable that is. That God made promises and kept promises in the middle of this human drama with its ups and its downs. Too often, I think, we talk about a God who only blesses someone who has their act together. But that is not the story of Jacob, is it? We have seen over and over again that this was not the case. Jacob's home and wealth grew through the blessings of God, sometimes regardless of who Jacob was or what he had just done. He also gave Jacob a new name and identity as returned home to face his brother. Furthermore, we have seen Jacob make a remarkable transition from who he was when we first met him to the person that we now see at the end of the story. We don't really like early Jacob because he's not really likable. It's not just us being judgmental, which maybe we are, but it's the fact of, of, of who Jacob is and how he treats uh, the people that are closest to him. But by the point that we are in this story, Jacob is a different person. He has been changed through his relationship with God as his heart continued to be formed by his God. So after the peaceful reunion with Esau, Jacob took his people and he camped within sight of a city called Shechem. And uh, they bought some land out there, and that became their home base within, uh, you know, shouting distance of this city. And perhaps in this story, this is the moment that we have been waiting for, where life finally calms down for Jacob, and 
we begin to see what we expect, even though we say we don't, that life with God is going to become easier. Unfortunately, that's not really how the story goes. What happens next is gross, awful, and about as messy as it gets. So buckle up, friends. As we finish our series on Jacob, which is a messy end. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open up to Genesis chapter 34, also known as the can we just skip this chapter chapter. We're not going to read through it. I'm going to kind of tell you the story as we go. But if you want to follow along, Genesis chapter 34. So again, Jacob and his camp had settled outside the city of Shechem. And Jacob had a daughter that was mentioned earlier named Dinah, whose mother was Leah. Uh, Now, Dinah caught the eye of Shechem, the son of the local ruler of the city Shechem, whose father was uh, Hamor. And he really liked Dinah when he saw her, and so he took her and he raped her. And after raping her, he decided that he loved her and spoke tenderly to her the Bible says. He then told his father, get me this girl as my wife. Now, let's just pause there for a moment. Anyone who says there's no romance in the Bible just hasn't read it closely enough. It's hard for us, for me, to go from watching Jacob slowly transform and see him start to live in the blessing of God and then see something that I consider to be so awful happen. Now Jacob heard about what happened to Dinah while all of his sons were out in the fields with the livestock. And he decided not to send a messenger to tell them. He was just going to tell them when they came back home. Now there's an important word that is used here. Uh, in this story, and that word is defiled. That Dinah was defiled by the actions of Shechem. And this word is found nowhere else in Genesis, though later you find it in the priestly tradition when God is giving all of, you know, the rules for worshiping in the temple and for cleansing yourself and purifying yourself. So what's interesting is that there is not yet a very deep concept of being pure before God. I mean, the Jacob story doesn't allude to that at all, that you have to be pure before God. But this concept is introduced that Dinah was defiled in some way, which again, the language ties to the priestly tradition. In this context, it makes the issue of what happened to Dinah much, much worse. which is kind of nice to have that perspective considering how women have been treated throughout the Jacob story. It's, it's, it's good to hear them say, this shouldn't be done to her, as opposed to her just being treated as someone to be traded. And that word defiled uh, occurs multiple times throughout the account. So Hamor after his son told him, go get me that girl as my wife, went to go get that girl for his son. And he approached Jacob, 
and asked what it would take for Dinah to marry his son Shechem. Meanwhile, Dinah's brothers all come back from the field, and they hear about what has happened to Dinah, and they are not happy about it. Jacob, as the figurehead of of this family is trying to work a deal with the people around them and to maintain peace. The brothers don't care so much about peace. They are just angry on behalf of their sister. So from verses 8 through 12, it's not going to be on the screen, but but Hamor said to them, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us, give us your daughters, and take our daughters for yourself. You can settle among us, the land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever it is that you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. So there's an opportunity for Jacob's family here. And the opportunity is to sort of become a part of this land and to have the, the protection and association with an established city and whatever is going on there, commerce, trade, all of these things, and, and it's suggested that they can intermarry and, and start, you know, this new larger nation. Now, side note, is that what God wants? No, we know it's not. But Jacob seems inclined to this deal. Well, Dinah's brothers see this as an opportunity. Not for social or economic growth, but to get back at these people that defiled their sister. So they said to the city of Shechem, Dinah cannot marry Shechem unless every man in the city was circumcised. And you, basically the idea is you need to become like us in order for us to have this partnership with you. Now Hamor and Shechem meet with the men of the city and they say, look, here's the deal. We can incorporate all these people into our city. All of their wealth, all of their women, all of these things, they can become a part of us. We can intermarry, and ultimately, because we are the established city, we can absorb them. And then all of their wealth will be ours. And they talk about it, and they're like, well, you know, that sounds pretty good. There's just one catch. Everyone has to be circumcised. And they all agree that they will all be circumcised in order to uh, make this, this joining of these groups. Now, by, if you read the account, uh, Hamor seems to be entering into this openly. He, he's already said what his intentions are. Shechem has already said what his intentions are. They are entering to this openly, but it was the sons of Jacob who were being deceitful. Because here's what happened. All of the men of the town of Shechem were circumcised, which is an uncomfortable procedure at that time, just as it would be now, although there's no painkillers. 
So they all go through this process of being, um, of being circumcised. And, and so while they are recovering, here's what happens. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Okay. That's a pretty large reaction to what happened to Dinah, isn't it? So when the story starts, who is the bad person? It's Shechem, right? And rightfully so. He's the bad person. When the story ends, who is the bad person? It's Simeon and Levi, right? They are the bad people. The ones, but all the brothers were in on the scheming. The reason why Simeon and Levi went is because they were full brothers of Leah. I'm sorry, thank you, Dinah. Sons of Leah, full brothers of Dinah. So that's why they went. It was a very, very personal action on their part. But the scripture gives us a sense of judgment on them because, I don't know if you noticed when I read it, but at the end, they describe the taking of all the stuff as what? Plunder. Who plunders? Pirates, right? Grr. Right? Plunder is not a taking what is owed. Plunder is a taking of what is someone else's for your own benefit. And so the story makes clear that these brothers are in the wrong. Now, Jacob discovered what happened, and he was upset with his sons. Was he upset that they had killed everyone in Shechem? No, he was not. Instead, he says, guys, we are still pretty small, and if any of these neighboring towns hears about what happens, they might attack us, and we won't be able to defend ourselves. What have you done to us? And as Jacob puts it, we have become a stench to the nations around us. We stink. And what do you do with something that stinks? You get rid of it, right? Now, it would be easy to judge Jacob at this point, but something we have to remember about him is when is the last time Jacob had a home that was his? It's been years since he left his first home and came to this place. And now he's bought this land, they've set up camp, everything is going okay, and then boom, everything blows up again. And this had to be a painful blow to someone who had been a homeless refugee for most of his life when he had finally settled and he could not stay there. 
So the brothers replied to this, well, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Jacob doesn't answer in the text and scene. Okay. What do we do with a story like this? I am grateful for the story in all of its ugliness for what it tells us about the meaning of having God on our side. So let's break this down a little bit. <clears throat> do bad things happen to the people of God? Yes, all the time. The Bible tells that story of bad things happening over and over again. Okay, so why do those bad things happen to the people of God? Well, one reason, as we have seen, is that other people do things to them that brings about bad results. Whether it is Laban, Shechem, or Hamor, we see that having God on your side does not stop others from making choices that will negatively affect the people of God. Everyone still has free will. They can choose to do what they want. And we see a couple of different truths in these stories. Number one, people are going to act in their own best interests, whether that aligns with your God or not. Do the Shechemites care about Jacob's God? No, there is no mention of him at all. So people are going to act in their own interests. Laban gave Leah as Jacob's first bride because it was in his interest to marry off Leah first and then to keep Jacob in his camp. So he kept Jacob on as a worker and tried to keep what Jacob had earned because it helped him to do so. And we also see that people are impulsive and take what they want without thinking about what that means. This is a very human trait. That you see something and want it, and so you take it. And it's why the first part of that dinosaur story is so descriptive of how people are. Because Shechem sees Dinah and is attracted to her, so what does he do? He takes her. And then after he takes her, what does he decide? Oh, I'm in love with you. And he spoke tenderly to her. Now, within that culture, this is still a big deal, even if the purity rights weren't taken. Because women, when they were given as husbands or as wives, were supposed to be pure for others. And so, I don't know if you've considered this, but Shechem is one of the only people that can redeem Dinah take her as his wife during that time which is a rock and a hard place right for her now important question is god responsible for other people making these choices no god allows them to make their own choices which this is important okay God does not stop others from making choices that are going to affect his people, for the most part. That is not the biblical story, and that's not the story of Jacob. You with me? 
He does not keep others from bringing harm. Secondly, God's people themselves make bad choices all the time. They bring it upon themselves. Jacob made bad choices. And it's hard in this story to classify the actions of the brothers, and specifically Simeon and Levi, as a good choice. They slaughtered all the men in a city while they had previously made sure they would be disabled. That is about as ugly and dishonest as you can get. Then they took the women, children, and animals as property. Murder and theft by force don't seem like great things to do if you are the people of God and even if you're not the people of God. All of culture looks down upon those acts. So we would not qualify this as godly behavior. Now, here's where there's sometimes a disconnect for us. We have an expectation that God will smooth things out for his people because his people belong to him. And we have transferred this idea that God needs, because God loves us, God needs to protect us. And because God needs to protect us, he will keep others from hurting us. And he will keep us from making the wrong decisions. Do you see how it doesn't run all the way down the line? It breaks down. And here's where we see the one main problem. The problem is that people are involved in this relationship with God. And when people are involved, it's going to get messy. Let me give you an example. Yesterday, Randy and I were at this uh, conference thing that Pepperdine was putting on. And we were sitting in this room that had all these glass doors. And there was a small bird that was flying into the glass door over and over and over and over again. And it would hit the glass door and it would fall to the ground. And then it would jump up like, you know, a couple of flaps up onto the bench of the picking table that was right there and then go again and go again, and go again, and go again, over and over and over and over and over again. And those of us that were on that side of the room and could see it, we were starting to get uncomfortable. And I talked to several people, like it was in the middle of a lecture, and the doors were behind the speaker. So I didn't want to get up and walk outside so everyone could see me walk across and be like, Fly free. You have those wings for a reason. Go. <laughs> so it stopped, and it left the table. And it was in my head, I'm thinking, thank God for that. Bless you, little bird. And then it came back about four or five minutes later and started the process again. And it wasn't until a small child came over and started playing out there that this bird flew away or found another window to fly into. I'm not sure. Why do I share that story with you? Look, people are messy, and we need to understand that, that those around us are messy, 
that we are messy, and we're not so unlike this bird that keeps flying into the glass door over and over again. We're not. We're, we're not so unlike that. We are going to continue to be messy, right? And yet we treat mess like it's such a bad thing, like it should be against our nature. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not suggesting that we shouldn't try to be less messy. You got me? That's not what I'm suggesting. We should try to be less messy. But at some point, we have to accept that this is a part of who we are. After all, church, why do we need Jesus in the first place? Because we're messed up. Jesus didn't come and die for us because we are capable of saving ourselves, and he just wanted to save those who were weak. That's not the story, right? So let's not make it that when we communicate about ourselves or life to other people. Let's get back to the story. So after this whole episode, God, who had, didn't comment on chapter 34, God told Jacob to return to Bethel. Now, I need to make a correction from last week because I, I got mixed up about a few things. Um, I said last week that Isaac and Rebekah lived in Bethel. I was wrong. They lived in Beersheba, not Bethel. And when Jacob returned to the land, uh, Isaac uh, actually lived near Hebron. So Bethel, the place that Jacob was re to return to, was the place where he first met God in the wilderness when he was traveling from his family's home to uh, go find Laban in Laban's camp. So that's the place that God told him to go to at this point. Now, is it significant that God told Jacob to go back to the place where Jacob first experienced him? Yeah. A lot has happened since Jacob met God in that place. But we have seen uh, through our study of Jewish feasts, for those of you who have been able to be involved, that God wanted his people to remember the things that he had done. We have seen how every part of these feasts represent a way that God has been faithful and good to his people, while also reminding them of where they had been and how God delivered them. So God chose Bethel, the place where Jacob discovered God and where God gave him his promises. And that place is a sacred place to Jacob. There is, most likely, no other place on earth that is more special to him. This homeless man who is trying to follow God. And there is no place that is more reflective of God's goodness to him than the place where God found him in the wilderness and told him, I am with you. And where Jacob said, God was here all along. And I just didn't see it. So they're going to go to this place as a camp, and Jacob does something that we have not quite seen yet. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 35, verses 1 through 5. He tells everybody, hey, we're going, but he won't let them go as they are. Now, there's no purification rites at this point. 
There are not any laws or rules for coming before God. So remember that as we read what happens, okay? Then God said to Jacob, Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears, and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out, and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Now, for us, the readers, this scene is a really good counterpoint to chapter 34. Jacob had to return to Bethel and build an altar to God in the place where he first experienced him. But Jacob understands that there must be some sort of purification, some sort of cleaning themselves up before they can go and meet God. And we discover that though Jacob's camp followed God and had to have known about God, what do they have amongst themselves? They have idols, which is another really human trait. They have idols, and Jacob was aware that they had idols. So before they could all go to Jacob's most holy place, they had to get rid of the idols and get, ring, get rid of the rings in their ears, which is a practice of the Canaanites to honor their gods. And then they had to change their clothes. Earrings of various forms and sizes and materials were universally worn in the East and were connected with incantation and idolatry. And they took all of those things, and what do they do with them? They buried them in the ground. What do we bury? We bury the dead, right? They bury them in the ground. And this moment is important because it tells us something more about Jacob and his understanding of God. Jacob understands at this point something really important. And he expresses it and and does something active to, to push this through. David under, or I'm sorry, David, Jacob understands that there is only one God. And these foreign idols are not him. None of them. And furthermore, they cannot go and make an altar to the one true God and have these idols in their back pocket. That's not how this works with the one God. So in this moment, Jacob does something we needed to see him do. He chose God. He chose. He chose God, the God of his fathers. And so his camp renounced other gods, changed their clothes, and went on their way. And as they went, it's interesting, the terror of God kept them safe. This hasn't happened yet either. Do you see? That God 
God's presence was so strong with them that others recognized it and kept their distance. One chapter, well, just a few verses ago, what did Jacob say? We stink, and they're going to come and get after us, and we won't be able to defend ourselves. But then Jacob chooses God, and they purify themselves, and God protects them as they go to do what he told them to do. So in response to this interaction, God, when they got, they, they, they went to Bethel and they came back and God blessed them again. From Genesis 35, verses 6 through 15. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel, so it was named Alon Bakuth. After Jacob returned from Paddan Aram, God appeared to him again and said to him, or I'm sorry, appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he was named Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you, and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it, and Jake called Jacob called that place where God had talked with him, Bethel. He is sanctifying places as he goes for God. Bethel was the place of promise, the place where God blessed Jacob, the place where Jacob first understood that God was there. And there is a little side note that I just want to draw our attention to. They chose God. Well, God chose them. They chose God. God showed himself with them. They went to Bethel, and what happened? Someone died. Someone died in this process. Just keep that in the back of your head for a minute. Bethel was the place of promise, and when Jacob returned from Bethel, so they went and built this place, God did two things. He reinforced the name change from Jacob to Israel. From heel grasper to one who struggles with God. Which shows that God is changing who Jacob is. And Jacob is now stepping into that new identity from God. He is a new person who is being formed through this growing relationship. And then God blessed Jacob again. Just as Jacob and his people chose God, God reiterated his promises to him that they will be a people, they will have a land, a home, a place of their own. Jacob chose God. God chose Jacob. And it all comes to this place. Now, maybe after this point, everything will start going smoothly. About that. Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. Isaac died. 
Then there was the small, just small, small issue of Jacob's sons faking Joseph's death as they sold him into slavery. And what do we see? Things keep going wrong. When does the mess end? It doesn't. Why? Because people are involved. And life here is temporary. And people still die and move on. Childbirth is still painful and dangerous. Though they are the people of God. Though they are the people of God. Things are going to continue to happen to them. Some are just natural. Some are things that others will do to them. And some are choices that they have made themselves. And that, friends, is the story we have seen unfold before us. It is a story of extremely imperfect people that are flawed in so many ways. They do the wrong thing more than they do the right thing. And we entered in this story with an expectation of what the people of God look like. And I just want to say that expectation that we had coming in, that people of God would be upright and someone to honor, and that God would smooth the way for them, all of those perceptions that we brought in with us are wrong. They're wrong. Because that's not how life is, number one. That's not how we are, number two. And this is the most important part. God does not base his treatment of us on our ability to be godly people. You hear me? God does not base his treatment of us on our ability to be godly people. Instead, what God does is keep his promises. He reached out to Jacob when Jacob was at one of his lowest points and told Jacob what? I am with you, and all the promises I have made will come to you. It's the story of how through God's faithfulness, this very imperfect man became something different. Not a perfect man, but different than he was. He became a man who struggles alongside God. But don't forget that struggle is a part of the definition of Israel. All right? It's not this person does easy things with God. No, that's, that's not the story we see. It's a story of an imperfect man choosing God and then forsaking all other gods as he comes to understand who God is. But notice this, it doesn't happen until the end of all of these things. Jacob is about to, for the most part, bow out of the story. He becomes uh, sort of a, a tangential character to the rest. And it doesn't happen until this point that he understands who God is and then treats God like God. Oh, I get it now. 
And it is the story of God remarkably continuing to work and bless no matter what we stupid humans are doing to one another or doing to ourselves. And that is the best news for us. It is the best news for us. Did you know that the story of Jacob is a gospel story? Did you know that? It is. It's a gospel story. And while we may not like how messy it is, the Jacob story is a reflection of our own world and our own lives. Look, maybe you never dress like a goat to deceive your father. I get it. But have you ever lied to those who love you? Or have they lied to you? I get it. You've never had to run for your life from your brother who wants to kill you. At least I don't think so. But have you ever cut off someone close to you because you didn't want to maintain that relationship anymore or you felt they were harmful to you? I have bad news for you. It would seem that Jacob's story is pretty much our story. People come, people go, people die. There's fights, there's arguments, there's hurt. There are really poor decisions. And we might want to say, well, yeah, but it's, we're not as bad as that. I, I get it. But it is a reflection of our world and our lives. And why we should embrace that is because this story shows the great patience of God. Even with those who are so profoundly messed up. When does God say to Jacob, if you don't do this, then I'm leaving you? When does he say that? He doesn't. When does God say to Jacob, you better get your act together or I am going to leave you? When does he say that? He doesn't. He doesn't say any of those things. Instead, the most amazing thing happens is that by God walking with Jacob, Jacob changes. Jacob didn't decide to change so he could walk with God. That's not the story. God walked with Jacob while he was a mess. Because when is the mess going to stop? It's not. It's not. And if God only walked with us when we were mess-free... There'd only be, <laughs> there would only be one set of footprints in the sand, and they would be ours. He works with us through the mess. And he gives us time. This might be, this is really good news. He gives us time to figure out who he is and what that means. So raise your hand. If you are, you know, at whatever ripe old age you are, if you have figured out everything that God being your God means. No, right? Do you know more now than you used to know? Praise God that he gives us time to understand and to understand him more. Although we could live a thousand years and never understand him fully. This story shows God's great faithfulness. This is not a God who is keeping score or looking for the next best option because Jacob messed up. 
This is a God who sees clearly who Jacob is and chose him. And that is good news as well. It shows how God overcomes with us, but not in the most obvious ways that we so often look for. He struggles with us when he needs to. He struggles for us, bringing us blessing in the midst of chaos, even if it's not the blessing we are looking for. The blessing is still there. And it shows how the outcome of this life of faith is ultimately in the hands of God and not our own. Because God's choice for us is way more powerful than our choice for him. Because his faithfulness is greater than ours. But isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that God never gave up on Jacob? It's a gospel story, friends. It's a story of what God did so long ago. And it's a story of what he's doing now. And it's a story that the world needs to hear. Not the story of a God who's looking for the best people, the most perfect, but a God who knows this world is a mess. And that is why Jesus came here.